Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from local physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you are actually tuned into our Citation Classics. You are tuned into our Citation Classics, and now we're actually going to talk a little bit of spine and actually more in depth is actually spine infections featuring Dr. Patel, Dr. Fitz, and student Dr. Chacon. And uh, they've really been crushing this spine citation classic. So, you know, let's just go ahead and hop into today's episode. I hope you all enjoy it. And also do not forget, feel free to check out our YouTube channel and you can see the accompanying slides that go along with this audio podcast. All right, everybody, until next time. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. All righty. How's everyone doing? We're back at it again with some of the spine citations classics. Um, I'm Soham Patel, PGY3 at Indiana University, uh, and I'm joined here today by uh, Jose. How you doing, everyone? It's Jose here, uh, medical student at the American University of Integrated Science in Barbados. So I'm sure by now you guys have become familiar with the Spine Citation Classic Series. Um, this is part one of a two-part series on spine infection. Uh, what we're going to do today is focus on infections of the native spine. So not going to discuss post-operative infection. Um, so let's go ahead and jump into things. So just a brief background. So when we talk about infections in the spine, uh, you know, it's sort of a continuum, but a couple of uh, terminology to be familiar with are uh, words like discitis, which refers to infection of the uh, the soft intervertebral disc, um, sometimes referred to as spondylodiscitis. Vertebral osteomyelitis, which is infection of the, the bone itself um, in your vertebral body, and then spinal epidural abscess, which can occur anywhere in the epidural space, um, ventrally more common than dorsally. Um, and, and this is a spectrum of disease, and these things often coexist. Uh, unlike most forms of adult osteomyelitis, uh, and, and I specify adult osteomyelitis, uh, which occur from, uh, you know, local spread, for example, in the diabetic foot, you know, you have an open wound and an ulcer and the bone gets infected. Um, vertebral osteomyelitis starts generally speaking with hematogenous seeding. Uh, it can be post-procedural or post-procedural or come from contiguous spread from a, you know, a psoas abscess, a retropharyngeal abscess, something like that. Uh, and then, you know, the biggest challenge with this entity of native spine infections is the difficulty in diagnosis. Um, and obviously this represents a very uh, potentially morbid condition if it were to progress and lead to neuro neurologic compromise. So it's definitely something important to recognize, diagnose, and treat appropriately. Um, so with that, we're going to run through some of the anatomy, pathophys, um, and management of native spine infections. So to start things off, this is a review article out of the AOS. Um, you know, Journal of American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, published in 2016 out of Nebraska. Um, and these authors kind of run through top to bottom some of the definitions and treatment of, of native spine infections. So let's go ahead and get things started. Um, so some of the things they mention, obviously, are presentation. You know, the patient comes to your clinic or in the ER. Uh, how do you recognize a patient that has uh, or is at risk for a native spine infection? So the, the triad that I, I keep in mind is, you know, back or neck pain, um, 
fever and, and leukocytosis or uh, elevated inflammatory markers. Uh, and you know, there's a patient population that has uh, it at a higher risk for spinal infections, and that's patients with uh, diabetes mellitus, uh, IV drug use, HIV, renal failure, cirrhosis, um, things that would, would cause an immunocompromised state. So, you know, I briefly mentioned the different causes of spinal infection, um, but we're going to kind of focus on, on a hematogenous spread. So, you know, we discussed the, the, uh, the venous system, uh, the Batson paravertebral plexus. It's a valveless venous system um, that allows retrograde flow. Uh, back to the spine. And, and that's implicated in the spread of infection. There's not any, you know, solid evidence or literature on this, but it can lead to seeding from distant sites, um, bacterial endocarditis, things like that, um, and cause, you know, an infection to seed in the, in the paradiscal region. So, you know, we talk about the, the contiguum of disease. So vertebral osteomyelitis is often the first place is the end plates have a, a rich blood supply. Um, and then this can spread to the avascular disc space and then culminate it into an abscess. Um, and this is most commonly in the lumbar spine, uh, followed by thoracic and then, and then in the cervical spine. Um, and, and only about 20% of these patients are presenting with, with neurologic compromise. So like I said, you know, the, the triad of back pain, fever, leukocytosis is generally the patients that you'd want to um, work up further. Um, focal tenderness is a specific physical exam finding. You know, you'll find point tenderness. Um, and, and that's why the H&P is kind of one of the most important things. You're looking for risk factors, um, you know, recent sepsis, uh, et cetera, in order to aid in the diagnosis. And then obviously uh, lab work, ESR, CRP, have been shown to be highly sensitive and specific. Um, one of the things in the differential is also, you know, tuberculosis spinal infection, which generally leads to granulomatous infection. Uh, so, so tuberculin skin testing is something that you should uh, discuss in patients who are at high risk if they're incarcerated, if they've emigrated from endemic areas. Uh, things like that. Um, so the most important thing, you know, we talk about treatment, um, we're obviously orthopedic surgeons, uh, but it's important to know that the mainstay of treatment for, for native spine infections, um, except for certain cases, is is medicinal with uh, IV antibiotics. So it's important to get an organism. Um, and this can be done either via blood cultures, um, you know, CT-guided biopsies or, or uh, you know, X-ray-guided biopsies, um, and then in uh, rare cases, surgical biopsies. So um, we try to hold antibiotics if we can uh, to aid in, in the, our culture value, unless a patient is you know, in septic shock, um, then we re generally recommend holding antibiotics, uh, getting blood cultures if those are positive, treating the organism um, or trying to obtain a biopsy in a minimally invasive fashion in order to treat the, treat the um, offending organism. Um, you know, we mentioned a little bit here on imaging. Um, X-ray findings for spinal infection are not present until the infection is significantly progressed. But, you know, you can see, uh, you know, end plate destruction, vertebral collapse, um, you know, some sort of osteolysis and even deformity at, at, to some degree, um, you know, with end stage infection. Um, but this is not until way later on in, in uh, the disease process. MRI is definitely the, the modality of choice um, in early infection and localizing infection and determining, uh, you know, what anatomic structures are involved. Uh, you know, you can evaluate the disc space, vertebral bodies, and the epidural space. Um, there are other imaging modalities which are less frequently used. Um, you know, they have different uh, bone scans and uh, radio tracer studies. I'm not super familiar with those. We don't use them in my institution. So um, generally speaking, we're ordering MRIs with and without contrast uh, to help evaluate the extent of infection um, and whether or not there's a presence of an abscess. Uh, and then there are obviously different surgical approaches, but the mainstay is, is obviously 
stabilization of anything that's been destabilized uh, by infection and eradication of infection. So surgical decision-making is, uh, you know, pretty controversial. And um, some of the hard indications for surgery are obviously, you know, neurologic compromise or progressing neurologic compromise, uh, overwhelming sepsis, so, so surgical intervention to then reduce bio burden. Um, and then lastly, if a patient has, you know, refractory to disease. So kind of the important points that this, this article runs through is that, um, you know, it says a pretty morbid condition if it's not diagnosed and recognized early. Uh, it requires a high index of suspicion because, you know, so many people are presenting to emergency departments with back pain, um, but you do have to look out for patients with risk factors um, and order the appropriate imaging, determine the causative organism, and, um, you know, start them on the appropriate uh, antimicrobial uh, treatment um, and then reserve surgery for, for specific cases. So this is a nice brief overview um, and we'll jump into some more specific articles here. Uh, this is a diagram. I think, uh, you know, this is a little bit useful in, in kind of understanding the uh, spectrum of disease. So this is referring to things that, you know, would lead to epidural abscesses. And this could obviously come from direct spread from vertebral osteomyelitis or it can come from a distant source. Uh, endocarditis or, you know, local abscess uh, along the psoas. Um, so this is an article uh, published in 2013 in the European Spine Journal. Um, and this is by uh, Dr. Duarte and Dr. Ricaro. Um, this isn't, you know, I chose this article because th they have a, a good diagram and a good algorithm in um, working these patients up and how to appropriately uh, triage, um, you know, native spine infections. So running through some epidemiology, I know we already touched on some of this stuff. Um, there's a bimodal distribution, which I think is important. You know, generally speaking, men in their 50s are the patients at highest risk. Um, and then we talked about, you know, the comorbid risk factors, diabetes, mellitus, again, HIV, uh, renal failure, uh, and liver cirrhosis. Um, we already discussed some of these different theories of pathogen spread. Um, we're going to go ahead and jump forward to some of the treatment algorithms. So say you get a patient and this is a, you know, their diagnosis um, algorithm and kind of work up in these patients. So you get a clinical suspicion of a spinal infection. So again, you need a high degree of suspicion, nonspecific back pain, um, fever. And then if they're having infections in the neck or around the cervical spine, they could have some sorts of dysphagia, torticollis, um, things like that. And then obviously red flag signs like neurologic weakness, numbness, incontinence, um, those are often not present uh, until way later on in the disease course. So you get suspicion um, from your patient based on their history, uh, some imaging findings, you have an elevated ESR, CRP, blood cultures, um, and then you get your advanced imaging. So MRI, and if the MRI is positive, you can confirm your infection. Um, and then this is when they order the uh, radionuclide imaging is if the MRI is inconclusive. Um, and if that's positive, then that will confirm the infection and, and that will make the diagnosis for them. So um, this is kind of their, their imaging algorithm. And then moving forward, um, so this is kind of the treatment algorithm and how they decide, uh, you know, who needs surgery uh, and who can be treated with medical management. Um, so like I mentioned, the, the major uh, three things that we're looking for in somebody that would be treated with surgery right off the bat would be a neurologic deficit, um, spine instability, uh, sepsis. Um, and then also, you know, we talk about refractory, uh, refractory cases that, uh, have failed medical management. So if they have any of those things, they get surgery. 
uh, obviously cultures are taken at the time of surgery and they get targeted antibiotic therapy. Uh, if none of those three factors are present, CT guided biopsy is performed um, and hopefully a pathogen is identified that can target antibiotic therapy. And if a pathogen is not identified, then the patients then undergo surgery uh, for a surgical biopsy. Um, so, you know, generally speaking, most of these patients are not making it to the point of requiring surgery and have good results with uh, treatment with antibiotics. And that's kind of the point of this algorithm, I think. So their key principles of treatment are, you know, antibiotic therapy to eradicate the infection, um, restore spinal structure and stability. Um, you know, microbes love an unstable spine. And so if there's a progressive infection that has caused instability, it's important to cause it to stabilize that. And then obviously, if there's any neurologic deficits, there needs to be a, a decompression performed, um, especially in the setting of an epidural abscess. Here's some of the, the prognostic factors in, indicated with a poor outcome. So these are things that we've kind of mentioned is older patients, um, if they have an uh, involvement at the cord level, so cervical or thoracic involvement, um, diabetes, you know, they present with bowel or bladder dysfunction. And if the pathogen is, is MRSA, these are all things that have been shown to have uh, worse outcomes. And obviously, you know, one of the things um, that was mentioned to me on my, my recent spine rotation was that around the cervical and thoracic spine, people are much, much less likely uh, to go with strict medical intervention um, with just antibiotics in the setting of an epidural abscess because that is at the cord level. Um, you know, there's it's a very high risk for progression and, and causing a a very a serious um, neurologic deficits. So, like I said, and we've mentioned this a couple of times, the diagnosis is the most important part, recognizing the patients who are at risk, recognizing the clinical presentation, ordering the appropriate imaging, and then determining the microbe to treat with IV antibiotics, and then, you know, determining who, who requires surgical intervention. So that's, that's the conclusion that these authors had with this um, kind of treatment algorithm paper. So another review article. Um, so we'll pass it over to Jose now. We'll move on to some um, some level three evidence. Thank you, Sir Hander. Um, this first uh, study here we have is basically the uh, it's a retrospective cohort study shows the the um, basically the risk factors, organisms, and neurological outcomes in in management with medical or surgical in patients with spinal epidural abscess. Here, this is written by Patel in 2014 at Spine Journal at the um, at University of Washington. So the way they, they did this approach is basically, as mentioned there, they did a retrospective study for all the patients who have who were diagnosed with with spine, with uh, epidural abscess from from their surgical center from their major hospitals here, and among the include they specifically stated the inclusion and exclusion criteria here. For example, for inclusions, they have to have a formal diagnosis of the condition. Patient has to be above age 18, and it's been confirmed through radiologic um, and even operative um, findings, as well as the exclusion includes those who have any post-operative or post-interventional infections, those with POTS disease, any isolated uh, other infections outside of the abscess, as well as um, as well as even other um, patients who have suggest that may have thought if they have um, abscess but found negative on either intraviral findings or, or culture studies. So what, and then what they did was they just divide each group, they divide uh, these group patients, once they were identified, they were uh, placed in three different groups. The first group was basically were managed just surgically. 
And the second group was basically will undergo med- both um, mostly um, medically and with IV antibiotics without the use of surgical management. And group three were those who failed medical management and thus um, with this indication of neurological decrease in neurological function and, or increased uh, pain tolerance top pain and then requires surgical intervention. So that was kind of like the crossover group that that failed. Um, so they made a third group for that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. Okay. And then at the end result, the, the key real key thing here from all from all this here is is marked in the red here, as you can see, was that the most common risk factor were as met as sir mentioned earlier that IV drug users, diabetes were were among the most top um um, common risk factors, those associated with spinal um, abscesses here. And of course, um, there were some little, um, it, there was a little bit of issue to, to know which, because sometimes there were some, um, for example, some had, had uh, some, some studies in the part of the study where it talks about medical management kind of succeed uh, with, with scores. Like for example, one study, one part shows that um, surgery have improved with, um, improved um like motor scores and but in some instances that sometimes surgery um kind of decrease it in other in other groups there so and there's not really much difference in terms of like timing and so forth so it was a very it was it was a little difficult to um to really to see what their main point was but from all that but we can all agree on certainly the risk factors were certainly very consistent as as we have mentioned earlier so as mentioned there, in addition to the um, to the diabetes and the uh, IV drug use as well, other indication for for failure for that shown indicators for failure of antibiotics and need for surgical intervention include diabetes mentioned. Those with high uh, inflammatory markers, especially CPR CRPs on greater than one fifteen, as well as leukocytosis, um, especially greater than twelve point five, and then positive blood cultures there. So basically. These were the, were the were the main find. In addition to the risk factors, these also were also the top um, indication for any if any types of um, that requires immediate surgical intervention. As well as in addition to um, in the study, they also mentioned those were, um, as Sirhan mentioned earlier, about diminished um, neurological function and decreased motor motor function and integrity of the spine, and then that that draws for immediate attention requires surgery intervention. Yeah, I think that that's really well said. Um, you know, basically what they showed was that the patients who failed medical management had a statistically significant higher rate of diabetes, CRP over 115, white count greater than 12.5 and positive blood culture. So, you know, when you're evaluating a patient, Jose, like on your sub eyes, if you see a patient in the ER that, um, you know, is presenting with spinal epidural abscess, even with no neuro deficit, so so no hard indication for surgery, um, but they have diabetes and a CRP of 120. I mean, you based on this, that would be somebody with you know two risk factors, 35.4, sorry, 42, 40.2% risk of failing medical management alone. So um you know, it is something important to keep in mind that if somebody has these risk factors and they're gonna fail medical management, um or likely to fill medical management, do you wait until they develop a neurologic compromise? And I think that the authors uh, address that kind of in the um, in the next uh, set of results. 
Thank you there, sir. And um, basically, um, as we mentioned earlier about the risk factor and so forth, and of course, um, what we see here also, especially in the, um, when you look at the top left um, uh, graph there, you'll see that that more than half of all the, um, in terms of the, the section of each of the, of the spine there, the lumbar was predominantly the most majority in all, which we can see that's usually very consistent with other studies that have shown that as well. And then, and of course, you have down the bottom there showing which were the um, the culture study shows which one were the predominant microbes involved. And they see was Staph aureus was the most common one. 40% were the methacephalin sensitive. And of course, 30% shows was MRSA, but certainly Staph aureus was truly the most dominant um, overall there. And of course, there were some other um, other known pathogens there, but a lot that usually depends on locate what locations and risk factors so forth there like tuberculosis um as well as uh brucella and then afterwards fungal infection but usually they were very in the more rare cases and usually it's location dependent based on where you are so overall there that um as meant as we mentioned earlier there earlier that the medical management present with higher uh, starting more scores than surgical uh, patients there. Although uh, the surgical intervention group have been taken after early uh, diagnosis of these of abscess there, as a, and then any delay, as I mentioned, any delay in terms of the um, treatment or intervention there results in lower post-operative more scores than if you've done, let's say, early surgery. But of course, this side is, there's a lot of uh, controversy about it because as much as we know that many spine surgeons have, are very aware about, uh, about these abscesses and infections and so forth in the spine there, but despite that, the clear management of it is certainly, certainly um, a little controversy in terms of like presentations and should we wait for, for blood uh, culture. Sometimes you need like a second, like two blood cultures in order to get a really true definite um, uh, confirmation of the um, the microbe or the organism in question, but but either way, how you look at one thing's for certain there, and as you see here in the last bullet there, certainly diabetes, leukocytosis greater than twelve point five, positive blood coders, and CRP inflammatory markers greater than one fifteen are certainly risk factor indication for failed medical management, thus warranting for surgical intervention. Yeah, I think that. Um... That's a great conclusion. And you know, they may not be hard indications, you know, like I, I would be careful saying that hard indications for surgery, but definitely something to push your decision-making or, or to think about when you're evaluating and, and um, coming up with a treatment plan. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, if somebody's presenting, so, you know, this is obviously retrospective study. So they noted that the patients who were treated medically only had higher Asia motor scores at, at baseline. So, you know, that's just showing that that they were more likely to operate initially on patients with lower than uh, nearly perfect because, you know, the medically managed patients, their Asia motor scores were like 99 out of 100. Um, and the surgically one, surgically managed ones were closer to 80 out of 100. So obviously like consistent with everything else, if you present with some neurologic deficit, you're going to initially be treated with surgery. Um, but the key, I think, is that in the patients who they manage medically that then failed, uh, they had a worse improvement than those who were initially operated on. And I think, you know, and you mentioned that. So if somebody's going to be treated medically, but has a lot of these risk factors, which may mean they're at high risk for failing and eventually needing surgery, 
um, is it better to operate early on them? And, and I think that's kind of what these authors are advocating is that uh, if somebody's going to eventually need surgery, you know, early is better than than waiting until their um, motor function declines. So I think that you know this is um, helpful in identifying patients who are at risk for failing medical management. I think that's the value of this article. I agree. I agree. Okay, and next we have here is the um, a rather much um, the what's referred to as the Infections Disease Society of America or IDSA, and basically what this this was about is basically a comprehensive review on on a um not so much on a national level but this is more of a global level here on the true diagnosis treatment management of of vertebral osteomyelitis by Burp and all published in 2015 at the clinical infectious disease advanced axis and done at the mayo clinic and as i mentioned earlier about this this was based on recommendation from the idsa or the infectious disease society of america uh, pertaining about diagnosis and management of patients with uh, native vertebral osteomyelitis. And basically what they did was they would they have a group discussion and you and going to a um, go back to the prior literature, I mean I mean literature that goes back decades ago to really go through a to see which were the best uh, recommendations and, and approaches and based on evidence and they used, what's called the GRADE system, which is an acronym stands for Grading of Recommendation, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation. It's when, when you, as we go further, you will see just how very elaborate this whole, um, this was not so much for the, to find the answer for it, but the, some other aspects of it that, that they took, took a while to do. And then, um, and of course there was, the issue was is to determine the diagnosis of a vertebral Osteomyelitis were very difficult, as we mentioned earlier. There was a, there, the controversy aspect to it was based on based on serologic, radiologic, and microbiologic testings, as well as questions pertaining to the optimal diagnostic strategies. And and patients with uh, with um, with MVO remain unanswered, as we mentioned in the pre, like we we mentioned about the abdurapsis, the um, spinal abscess we mentioned in the previous was was an example of that. And then an extensive review of the pathophysiology that's that's not in scopes of these guidelines. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, because since this was a very large um, from multinational um, approaches, sometimes some countries have their own specific guidelines and so forth. So basically, they're trying to set up uh, these guidelines based upon based upon these pre-developed um, um, questions to ask. And these questions, basically, as as you can see here, there were thirteen. Uh, questions, but the primarily ones you see here is basically asking what would be the diagnosis, what would be the appropriate evaluation, uh, should any uh, image guiding aspiration or biopsy should be necessary, and as well as those is what's the next step in it, is imaging still needed to, uh, what's the what's the duration of the um, the antibiotic therapy, and even uh, what are the indications for surgical management. So they have gone through practically answering each of these questions in a way to do it. So how, and how about they go about, as I said earlier, is that they went through a quite a very extensive um, literature search from, from date back to like decades, like I think it was 30 plus years of, of this information to determine, um, determine what would that uh, from all the accumulation, accumulation of those um, literature searches, they would, they would answer these questions each individually and come up with a um, 
a, a score, a kind of like a grading. We'll show this later. Um, the different grade, like what's what was considered to be high and weak, strong and weak, etc. So they drafted into the into three different groups into the identify and divide them into diagnosis, management, follow up, uh, and according to these guidelines. And how they do it was they did, as I mentioned, they did a literature search from various databases like PubMed. Uh, Google Scholar, Cronky, et cetera, as well as, in addition, textbooks and other relevant articles, websites, review articles on this on this subject. And then each one of them will be evaluated um, with consistent with other um, IDSA guidelines, as well as also to evaluate e the quality of, of, the, of and the grade of each recommendations. That's why I was saying earlier about some of them will be strong, or strong uh, medium, and then some others will be weak or weak, strong, weak, et cetera. So they're bracketing in different categories. So we're gonna highlight some few of these uh, recommendations they did. Like for example, the diagnosis among them will be include suspicious of diagnosis of new worsened back pain, 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 fever, which we stated earlier there. Uh, clinician suspects on uh, diagnosis basically with nursing back pains, elevated uh, inflammatory markers, as well as also suspicions of um, with worsening back pains and blood, any bloodstream infections, as well as uh, infective endocarditis. And then the next one asking about diagnosis, um, diagnostic evaluation. It was recommended to uh, print medical motor sensory neurologic examinations, and then um, obtain uh, blood cultures. This was referred to taking two sets, one for aerobic and anaerobic, and then a baseline uh, inflammatory markers for for some suspicious of you know, osteomyelitis. They also recommend for M, spinal MRI for, for strong suspicious of NVO. And then when they ask concern about should there should be any imaging or biopsy done, they they came up with recommend they recommended that imaging guy aspiration biopsy in suspicious of um, of NVO based on clinical laboratory and imaging studies as well as a known uh, microbe diagnosis. Basically they cultured it and it was able to be identified, but has not been, has not been established by blood culture or surrogate tests, okay? <clears throat> and then when asked about um, should um, IV medication be withheld prior to an imaging diagnostic or biopsy, they, rec they came up with a conclusion saying as a strong um, suggestion that the patients with any neurologic compromise with in with the presence or without the presence of sepsis or any immunologic stasis um, instability were recommended for immediate surgical intervention with along with empiric um, IV antibiotic therapy. And then when asked about what's the next step in terms of um, with non-diagnostic imaging aspiration, aspiration biopsy, so what they did was in absence of any kind of um, any presence of infections like sepsiemia um, to obtain a second aspiration biopsy with very high suspicious NBO with um, basic aspiration biopsy. Um, in the case of any like staph um, um, infections or any kind of uh, other um, probable microbes as listed here. Patients with a non-diagnostic first imaging inspiration and any uh, requires further workup, they exclude any, um, like say, uh, atypical kind of microbes, like anaerobics, uh, bacilli, bacilli, microbacteria, fungal, et cetera. 
Interesting. So I, I think, you know, I, I actually, um, you know, we typically just send anaerobic and aerobic cultures. So I think, you know, it's interesting that they're saying, you know, in patients who get a biopsy that is non-diagnostic or doesn't grow anything, that's when then they're recommending to do these, you know, obscure culture media and, um, you know, fungal testing and stuff. I think it, and that makes more sense instead of sending that right off the bat when you're most likely going to grow staff. Um, so I think that's an interesting point is, is when to be, um, you know, looking for, for rare organisms. It's only until you've not grown something the first time. Indeed. I agree there, sir. It's, it's kind of like when you think about, uh, remember we we're talked about like, say, for example, when a patient comes in, when you determine they have, let's say, uh, in infective endocarditis, we always typical, like your typical, typical bacteria, but they all alongside, they tell you there could be a possibility it could be these other rare, they HIC, um, right. we call it an acronym HIC bacteria. So it's kind of like the same story here. If ones, your typical ones are not considered, they consider the rare ones. Right. So uh, when an empiric antimicrobial therapy should be started. So um, you know, if they're stable and, and have no neurologic deficits, um, the authors recommend holding any empiric therapy um, and waiting till you can get culture data so you can give targeted antibiotics. Um, and obviously, like as they mentioned, you can start empiric therapy if there's hemodynamic instability, sepsis, or progressive worsening neurologic symptoms. That is a little bit redundant. Um, and then they, they've agreed optimal duration is, is six weeks, so minimal six weeks of uh IV or highly bioavailable oral uh, antibiotics, um, and then indications for surgical intervention. Um, so, you know, these are kind of the ones we've heard also from the Vicaro paper, progressive neurologic deficits, progressive deformity, spinal instability, um, persistent or recurrent sepsis. Uh, and, you know, those are their, their recommendations. Obviously, um, you know, that can vary patient to patient. And I think um, generally speaking, I, I took this as more of guidelines for the uh, medical management. So, you know, biopsy, antibiotics, duration of antibiotics, um, not necessarily the indications for surgical intervention, which are a little bit more complicated and uh, decided on a case-by-case -case basis. But regardless, I think that this is a good a good article to review. Um, you know, at my institution, you know, we get consults for, uh, you know, vertebral osteomyelitis and epidural abscess and IV drug users relatively frequently. and um, it's definitely a multimodal approach. Uh, you know, the medicine teams involved in treating comorbid conditions. We've mentioned, you know, diabetes, renal failure, cirrhosis, HIV, things like that. Those need to be addressed. Um, I, you know, ID team is obviously involved in the an antibiotic selection and uh, duration. And then, you know, we're there if uh, we're not able to obtain bacteria. We're also the ones doing serial neurologic exams to ensure there's no neurocompromise. Um, and then obviously if, if surgery is indicated, then, then we... Uh, will perform our role, but um, it's definitely something to be familiar with. And it's something that's increasing in prevalence. Certainly uh, agreeing there, Saram, especially uh, as you mentioned, this is usually a multidisciplinary um, team approaches. Consider the fact there's both medical and surgical side to it. It's kind of like very, because in a lot of these conditions, a lot of times you got to monitor a lot. It's kind of like almost like doing tumor boards kind of approach kind of things. Especially because a lot of times some of these, um, even with masses, let's say in in that in thing is an abscess, but in reality it could be an oncol, could be like a tumor, for example. That's why a lot of times that sometimes these um, infections have to in these presence of these masses, you have to rule out, let's say, oncological because they could be very 
present in terms of symptoms. Yeah, it's funny. You know, in peds, we call osteomyelitis the great mimicker. So, um, you know, it can look like sarcoma sometimes on imaging, but it's definitely, uh, you know, important to to rule out everything um, when you're working up, you know, mass or, or tumor. You want to definitely rule out infection. Agree. Well, we included a couple of other papers at the end, and you know, this is a little bit of a redundant topic, and these are, um, you know, review articles, not high high level evidence. Um, but you know, they, they kind of review some of these points that I think are important, um, you know, for junior residents, as they start seeing these consults and thinking about working, working these patients up. One thing, uh, I may not have mentioned is, is imaging the whole spine. So, you know, there's often, um, skip lesions or there can be an abscess in multiple locations. So I think that, uh, in general, it's, it's important to, to image the whole spine, obviously, um, that can vary case by case, but, uh, if somebody's septic and seating, uh, at one level, you just want to make sure that there's not. Uh, other sources of infection as well. All righty. We thank you for, this concludes our presentation. We thank you for those um, for watching there. And, we'll, and we thank uh, also Suram and for his presentation there. And we'll look forward to for the next topic around. We'll see you next time, guys. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. Dr. Fitz, Dr. Patel, and student Dr. Chacon did a great job breaking down spine infections. We hope that you all learned some things as well as kind of these high yield uh, articles. You know, we hope that you all are getting something from this series. So without further ado, we will see you all next time. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenens should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenens is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.